East Nashville is set to see one of the largest projects that has ever happened on that side of the river. Hospitality is getting crushed, but this sector is actually crushing it. And multifamily is set to see some pretty big changes over the next few years. All of that and more on this week's episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. What's going on, everybody? I'm Tyler Cobble. I'm your host here for the show every week where we're going live at 5.30 p.m. on Mondays Central Time to cover the biggest news in commercial real estate that's been going on. Uh, let's go ahead and dive on in. We've got some really, really neat stuff for you guys today. So, of course, covering the Nashville market first, this is a, a massive announcement. So, Chicago Entity Plans Project for Beeman's Edge Hill site. This is coming out of the Nashville Post. Uh, this is a property, if you're familiar with Nashville, uh, it sh it's basically the entrance to the Gulch. So, once you get to uh, the interstate, just across the interstate, if you're watching live on YouTube, uh, the, the Gulch is right there. So, this property is right on the interstate. And uh, it's, it's what, 910, yep, 920 and 1000 Hawkins Street. So this is a, uh, the Beeman Automotive site was a, uh, this was a service shop. So there's actually multiple sites in Nashville, mostly Midtown, uh, kind of in that Midtown area that are owned by the Beeman Automotive Group. And this one's in Edge Hill, again, just on the verge of becoming the Gulch. Uh, it's about 6.8 acres. And it's under contract with a group out of Illinois, uh, which is uh, pretty exciting to see. Again, there's an immense amount of interest in Nashville from outside groups. Uh, to be called North Edge, the project will share, I'm sorry, the project will include a 12-story mixed-use structure and three eight-story mixed-use buildings. Uh, apparently, they're going to offer up to 540 residential units, 500 hotel rooms, and 160,000 square feet of office space. This is massive for Nashville. I mean, just projects like this that continue to get announced just reinforce the fact that Nashville is going really strong. I mean, look, there's a reason that the Urban Land Institute designated Nashville as the number three city in the country in terms of investment uh, and demand. So it's a group called, it looks like Marquette, uh, Marquette Companies, um, which could not be reached for comment. Uh, it looks like they've operated mostly in Chicago and Houston. So for a group of that size coming to Nashville, uh, they will not have a problem getting a project like that through. Pretty exciting to see. Uh, there's, there's several, like I said earlier, there's several other parcels that are owned by the Beeman Automotive Group that they are looking to, uh, to sell off and it looks like this may be maybe the first piece of that. Moving on, First Bank named title sponsor of New Franklin Amphitheater. This is according to the Business Journal. Um, so Greystone Quarry is a pretty large uh, piece of property. It's, let's see, 138 acres. And it really got its start as a, a wedding and event venue. And it looks like they're adding this uh, this amphitheater there now. Uh, which is uh, huge for Nashville. You know, we've had a big gap in the entertainment, uh, like the outdoor venue entertainment uh, in suburban Nashville ever since Starwood Amphitheater was closed down. And, of course, we've got uh, Ascend um, downtown. But, you know, Starwood used to be where everyone would go. I mean, I went to so many different shows there. It was, it was such a great concert venue. Um, and we haven't really had anything like it since. So it's pretty exciting to see, you know, First Bank is going to be uh, I guess headlining the sponsorship here, they're calling it the First Bank Amphitheater, and it looks 
unbelievably cool. Um, you know, getting in here, they're talking about having these VIP um, sections uh, in the cliffs of the of the rock up there. Let's see. Uh, VIP experience that includes one-of-a-kind elevated cliffside suites, private boxes, and premium cu- uh, club seats. I mean, it doesn't get much cooler than that. They're actually utilizing the the natural components of the site to add to the experience, which I think is super, super cool. So, uh, you know, I think First Bank is the sixth largest bank in Nashville, uh, which is, uh, I mean, that's they're a pretty good size. Let's see, 7,500 concert attendees in a spacious 1.5-acre plaza area for gathering, dining, and merchandise. I mean, it sounds exactly like what Starwood Amphitheater used to be. So it'll be pretty exciting to see what that looks like in, in the, new, the new modern era. Looks like uh, you can go ahead and purchase memberships uh, if you want to be a part of that VIP experience. And, yeah, that's about it, yeah. First Bank is Nashville's sixth largest bank with $4.77 billion in local deposits. So pretty good-sized bank uh, to be supporting uh, the amphitheater there. The rendering looks great. They, they've got some pretty large screens so that whenever there's larger crowds, if you're sitting further in the back, of course, you can still experience the concert. You'll be able to hear everything. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool thing for, for Franklin. And here is that project that I was alluding to earlier Mixed-use project eyed for Dickerson Pike. This is according to the Nashville Post. This is a massive, massive deal. Uh, Pretty exciting to see. It's on the eastern side of Dickerson Pike, not far from our project, uh, the Provisionary, which is on the western side of Dickerson. Um, This is on the 1500 block. Uh, Mine is on the 1400 block, so it's literally one block away from that development. So apparently it was nine parcels, um, and it was located right next door to Uptown Flats, which was a, uh, an MDHA apartment development. And this is going to be mixed use. So 6.43 acres, and they are, uh, they're going with the address of 1505 Dickerson Pike, going for 700 residential units and 20,000 square feet of commercial space, just in one project. It's two buildings. Um, one is going to be no more than five floors. Looks like the other one will be six. They're going to have to go in for some special uh, I guess rezoning uh, for this. I don't know if they're planning to do an SP or not. I don't know if it says. Um, it looks like they, they've retained Kimley Horn to do the engineering for them, um, as well as Humphreys and Partners out of Dallas. So, yeah, they'll, it says here they'll, they'll go through a rezoning. They're going to have to. That side of, of Dickerson Pike is actually only permitted uh, up to four stories. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what they come out with right there. It's a, that's a great side of Dickerson Pike. You know, you've, you've got skyline views, basically at street level. Um, almost across the street is the Dive Motel, which is a, an incredibly popular, um, you know, hotel uh, renovation by the same group that did the Urban Cowboy over near Five Points. So um, pretty, pretty cool little project. All right, well, moving on, let's get into Market Watch. So what, uh, what markets are we going to be looking at this week? Obviously, you know, if you've been following along uh, for any period of time, you probably won't be too surprised at this project, and it is Austin, Austin, Texas. Now, if you are not familiar with, uh, with the ULI's Emerging Trends in Real Estate, I highly recommend that you go check out 
the links in the in the description below after the video has has gone live um, we will have that down there for you to review but every year they put together emerging trends and they send it out and it's and it's such a phenomenal um, packet they they really have a, a, a massive amount of data but you'll notice that every week when we're talking about these um, these emerging cities we we reference this this document because it has it just it makes so many good points so of course you know austin being labeled as a boom market um it's number two in overall real estate prospects only behind raleigh durham and uh barely ahead of nashville uh probably a little more than that but barely ahead uh home building prospects number two it's another one of those uh what they've designated as magnet cities so uh, other magnet cities um, that are 18-hour cities include Austin, Charlotte, Raleigh, Denver, Nashville, Tennessee, Seattle, uh, you know, all of those cool cities that are not quite, I mean, they're not 24-hour cities, right? Like, you're not going to compare Nashville and Austin to New York. It's, a, it's just a totally different scale. But they're 18-hour cities. There's almost something that you can do. Uh, there's almost always something that you can go do, uh, which is pretty cool. So again, talking, diving further into the 18-hour cities, and look at this, local market perspective investor demand is the highest in the country at 4.47 out of 5, followed by Dallas-Fort Worth at 4.33, and Nashville at 4.15, just to give you a little context there. Um, and again, at the bottom, you know, Detroit's 2.33 out of 5. So to put that in perspective, I mean, Austin is twice as um, sought after as, as Detroit is. Um, let's see here. Local market perspective, development and redevelopment opportunities. Austin is number four on the list at 3.75 out of five. Uh, only behind Raleigh, Durham, Charlotte, and Northern New Jersey. That's pretty interesting. I wonder uh, why Northern New Jersey is on there. We're not seeing them anywhere else on this list. Uh, I would imagine because of the flight out of the urban core of New York during COVID, um, you know, that could be, you know, just the next stop. So. U.S. industrial property, of course, Austin's number four on the list for buy, hold, sell recommendations. It looks like everybody's buying. Um, if you're not buying, you're holding. Um, as far as it's the same with office and retail. Wow. Okay, so retail in Austin is actually far lower than industrial and office and multifamily. Looks like only 13% are buying retail in Austin. Now, to put this in perspective, the very few people are buying retail. It looks like Orlando, which tops the list, is 28%. Um, but that being said, you know, Austin is up there as one of the highest hold markets for retail. So, you know, maybe uh, properties aren't trading as much, people aren't buying as much, but they're also not panic selling uh, like the, it looks like they are in Fort Myers. Um, 47%, or even, even down in Miami, 52% of retail owners are selling. That's, that's remarkably high. Going down into U.S. Hotel, um, which we're definitely going to get, get into here in a bit. It looks like Austin is a top, what is that, six, top six in the country market. Um, again, I mean, not, not a bad market at all. 59% uh, are holding. Only 25% are selling. So that's, uh, that's probably it for the Urban Land Institute article. Again, I highly recommend if you do not uh, subscribe to ULI's newsletter um, or you've never seen this, uh, this document before, I highly recommend going through it. It's got some, it's got some pretty fascinating information on markets in there.
This next one coming at you from CXRE, top five hottest markets for Texas commercial real estate in 2021. And of course, Austin is topping the list, followed by Dallas and Fort Worth. Interesting to me that Dallas and Fort Worth are still, I know that they're really technically different cities, but it, it always just seems, because Dallas has gotten so big, that Dallas-Fort Worth is really one market. But, uh, you know, it, it's no surprise why Austin is number one in Texas. You've seen all of these major companies moving over there, which we'll get to here in a second. But I'm a huge fan of Austin. I mean, if I had to leave Nashville, uh, there's no other city that I would pick above Austin. Austin is my favorite city. Before the pandemic, I would go there three, four, five times a year. And, you know, hopefully one day we'll be opening up branches of the companies out there and doing some investment and development. But, you know, right now we're, we're very focused on Nashville. And honestly, Austin's huge. I mean, there's, there's some really big players, um, you know, messing around in that market. So it's just such a cool environment. You know, whenever I go out there, I, the way that I relate it to people is it is it's it's Nashville with a Texan flair. You know, it's it's almost the exact same city in terms of the food and beverage offerings, the boutique hotel offerings, the you know, the nightlife and the events and things that you can do. I love the riverfront. It's it's a fascinating riverfront because um, unlike, you know, Nashville's is very industrial and commercial like we have actual you know, boats, uh, transporting goods and, uh, up and up and down the river. Whereas in Austin, it's technically, I mean, they dammed it off, so it's not really a lake, but I guess it's kind of a lake. They call it Lake Ladybird. Uh, whenever I was down there, you could see people out there, you know, swimming, um, kayaking, paddle boating. I mean, just about anything, you name it, they can do that in the river there because it's not commercially used, which is pretty neat. Uh, makes it pretty safe. Uh, it looks like here... Austin boasts plentiful employment opportunities, a booming tech industry, of course, it's the Silicon Valley of the South, and an affordable cost of living. Uh, plus, it's a leading innovator of green construction, which, of course, you know, is, that's trending pretty heavily right now, especially amongst millennials. And uh, there's even hedge funds and REITs that have to have, uh, you know, they've designated a certain portion of their investment portfolio specifically for green construction. So if you're not uh, building your, your, your buildings green, you're automatically eliminating those buyers uh, from your pool, which just is not smart. So let's see. They're also saying Austin produces some of the most exceptional talent in the nation uh, since it's home to the University of Texas, which is an incredible university. Um, nothing but good things to say about it. They've got some pretty phenomenal programs there. Obviously, Tesla's moved there. Um, let's see. This is interesting. The pandemic actually helped Austin's economy as more people leave crowded cities in search of wide open space, affordable living and work from home options. Many young professionals land in Austin and the surrounding suburbs. That's not really surprising, right? I mean, Austin is an incredible thriving city uh, compared to your more your other major metropolitan cities. Uh, it's far more affordable, right? So if you're look, if you're a millennial, and you suddenly have the option to work remotely, you're probably not going to be paying exceptionally high rents in these urban cores and putting up with taxes. You know, Texas is also a does not have state income tax. So you look at that, not only is it more affordable to live in Austin, Texas, you also don't have to pay a state income tax. I mean, the, the quality of life, it's just like Nashville. I mean, it's it, there's almost there are very few cities in the country that can really compete with that, uh, which is why all everybody's moving there. 
I mean, it's such, it's such an outstanding city. Um, I guess we're going to get a little bit into that with this next one, which is from the Austin American Statesman. Austin area housing market stays hot, sets January records. When I was going through this article earlier to make sure I was prepared for this, I kept just replacing Austin with Nashville. I mean, it's, it's the same thing that we've been reading in Nashville for the last few years, um, which I'm sure they look at Nashville news and they're like, wow, that sounds like how Austin's been for the last few years. You know, continuing the Austin area housing markets, hot streak home sales, and the median price paid for those homes set records for a January. According to new data from the Austin Board of Realtors, that's pretty remarkable considering we're just coming out of the pandemic. Uh, well, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but we're coming out of the first year of the pandemic, uh, coming out of winter, which is honestly or obviously one of the worst times uh, of the year to be selling homes. Um, TG's giving us a thumbs up. Thumbs up, TG. Appreciate you being here. Um, and they're setting records. So it just shows you that it, it says here, low mortgage interest rates, high demand, and a shortage of homes continue to fuel the market. It's the exact same thing as what's going on in Nashville. You just cannot build housing fast enough for the amount of people that are moving down here. Again, it's that flight from blue cities to uh, in blue states to blue cities in red states. So Nashville, Austin, Raleigh-Durham, Charlotte, you know, they're all thriving because of this. Um, it just, it, the quality of life is better and the opportunity is there. And especially, you know, again, if you're, if you're wanting to go for one of those, uh, I guess, highly sought after jobs, you know, everybody used to say, oh, I'm going to go, I want to go to New York because I want to work for Goldman Sachs or I want to work on Wall Street. And now you're starting to see these massive uh, companies and firms moving off of Wall Street or moving out of New York and coming to cities like Nashville. You look at Alliance Bernstein. I mean, that was one of the biggest moves, biggest announcements in 2019, uh, or maybe it was 2018, uh, that they were literally they were coming off of Wall Street and going to little old Nashville. Uh, there's, there's tons of that going on. Sales of single-family homes, townhomes, and condos soared almost 24%, with 2,500-plus homes changing hands. That's an insane amount of homes. Half of the houses sold for over $365,000, uh, which is an increase of nearly 20% over year over year. That's remarkable. I mean, that, that is, you can't tell me that's not fueled by Californians, Chicagoans, New Yorkers that are, you know, they're, they're, I mean, look, they come down to, to cities like Nashville and Austin and they go, you know, your average house, you can get a house for $365,000. You know, I can pay a million dollars and I can get, you know, 3,000 square feet right next to downtown, absolutely, I'm going to do that. Uh, whereas, you know, Nashvillians, and I'm sure some, um, what is it, is it Austinians or Austinites? I don't know how they, what they call themselves. But, you know, the, we look at it and it's like, man, who would ever pay that price for that? But, you know, when we're paying $300 and $400 a square foot, you look at New York and you're paying $800 a square foot. Or L.A., you're paying $800 plus. Um, so it, it just, it makes looking at the national market a no brainer. And, you know, the article later goes on to say how frustrating it is for buyers. Uh, there, it looks like they're, they've gone down from about 1.3 months of inventory to 0.4. Look at that 0.4 months of supply. That's crazy. That's literally less than two weeks of supply. That means if, if, Homes come on the market today. They will not be on the market in two weeks. And there's nothing you like you will have literally a whole turnover of inventory in two weeks. 
which is pretty crazy. Look at this. Despite 2,800 plus new listings in January, which was an 11% decline from 2020, active listings dropped 74% to 1,370 properties. So think about that. Active listings, 1,370 with 2,500 or 2,300 homes changing hands. Obviously, th that inventory is going to stay low for quite some time. If not, you know, I mean, obviously, you can't really deplete an inventory. But that's how you get to these, these, uh, these issues where, look at this, most listings receive multiple offers at 5 to 25% over the asking price with the appraisal waived the same day they come on the market. This is according to uh, REMAX Posh Properties. I mean, Nashville's seeing the same thing. And it's incredibly frustrating for buyers because you come in, you know, 10% over asking and you think, okay, well, you know, I'm paying more than I, than it's, you know, the market thinks it's worth. Well, the market comes in and says, no, we're, somebody else is going to pay 25%. They've got all cash. They'll close in a week. They'll waive all contingencies immediately because somebody's selling a place down in, uh, you know, down in San Francisco and they've got a million dollars in cash to play with. And they just want, you know, they're tired of looking at dozens and dozens of homes. So it's pretty, you know, I know that this is obviously an issue um, and it's incredibly frustrating because you just, you can't build fast enough to keep up with this kind of demand. Um, but uh, it, it's a good thing for, for Austin to have this problem. You know, it's, you would much rather have incredibly low inventory than have too much inventory, right? So, you know, of all the problems to have, this is a pretty good one. All right, moving on to the future of commercial real estate. These are things that we see are changing the commercial real estate market, uh, and they're definitely trends that you'll want to keep an eye on. So up first, stakes are high for a mass return to work as tenants' plans remain mixed. So we've talked about this a couple of times on the show with regards to office space, right? Is office dead? No, obviously it's not dead. Honestly, th this article from BizNow is probably the best take on what's going to happen in, in the world of office space that I've read yet. Um, you know, most of the stuff that we read, is just, oh my gosh, yeah, you're just jumping on the bandwagon to murder office space. It doesn't make any sense. I, I, I genuinely don't believe that office space is going anywhere. I've been saying since day one, it's, it's not going to die. It's going to change. It has to change. There's no way it can't. And this article hits it, it just nails it right on the head. Um, you know, it talks about uh, how some major companies have publicly stated plans to reduce their global office footprints. That includes REI uh, which, and Nordstrom, which both backed out of new headquarter expansions, by the way. CVS Health, uh, let's see, CVS and Ralph Lauren both plan to cut as much as 30% of their corporate office space, while Nordstrom and REI, yeah, Nordstrom and REI both backed out of headquarter space in, in Seattle. Um, Salesforce, they are notorious for just taking up massive amounts of office space. They are, and, oh, look at that. They're San Francisco's largest user of office space. They've backed out of a commitment to at least 325,000 square feet at a yet-to-be-developed tower. Uh, that's That's got to be, I mean, just incredibly difficult to deal with as a developer and as the brokers in that deal um, for, for all sides. I mean, that's not an easy decision to make, right? I mean, you don't just wake up one day and go, you know what? I think we should back out of a 325,000 square foot deal. I mean, it's that's a huge change for the company, right? I mean, they're completely changing how they operate. So, 
This is this is where the issue um, comes in, though, is the implications for a widespread decrease in office usage. So in a scenario wherein the average office using employee works from home one and a half days per week, which let's be honest, that's incredibly realistic. This is the first realistic stat that we've actually heard about office space when people are talking about how it's going to be impacted. I think that a f more flexible work from home schedule is absolutely going to happen. So let's say somebody works from home one and a half days per week. I think we can all agree that that's likely to happen. Only 4.4% of CMBS loans backed by single office properties would retain their rating. Let that sink in. If employees on average work from home only one and a half days a week, 4.4% of CMBS loans backed by single office properties would retain their rating. That's incredibly dire. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a, a corporate office guy. We don't invest in class A office space. It's just not, it doesn't, it's not what I do. It doesn't fit my portfolio. Uh, we're more value add. That's going to have a major impact on corporate office real estate. Because those are the groups that are more likely to have, you know, like a sales force to have, you know, X amount of their employees work from home permanently. You know, your small businesses that make up, they also make up a pretty sizable amount of square footage in the market. They'll likely have that, but they may not necessarily change their habits as much as a corporate office would that has tens of thousands of employees. And they can make a major impact with one decision. They estimate that this would cause a permanent 10% drop in office space, uh, in office demand, and an average 15% decline in net cash flow. So this gets back to what, what I was saying again. This was, I don't know, last show or the show before where I was talking about how no building should ever be a single asset class. I mean, you should, I mean, ground floor retail aside, ground floor retail isn't enough, right? I mean, cool, you're, you're, you're mixed use, right? But is that really mixed use? No, you've got one floor out of 28 that could possibly, you know, stay there. Um, you know, let's talk about the other 27 floors. I think that having office space solely in the rest of that building, I mean, look at it. If you only owned office space, you'd be expecting a 10% drop in office demand and a 15% decline in your net cash flow. That's a huge hit for your investors. If you're having to go and, and give reports and talk to them about what's going on, you're just not diversified well. doesn't matter if you own office space in multiple markets. I mean, that this is, you know, this is only a moderate level of stress. But what if they had 10 floors of apartments or 10 floors of a hotel, which, of course, you could argue that hospitality is not doing well. But, you know, that aside, you know, 10 floors of condos, that's kind of like what the Four Seasons does. You know, they come in, they have a certain amount of floors that are dedicated to for sale condos, and then they operate a hotel. And then there's ground floor retail. Sometimes you'll have a couple of floors of ground floor retail. So, you know, I, I think that this just goes further and further into the, um, the thesis that no building should really be a single asset class, I, I guess is what I'm getting at. Uh, oh, here, look at this. They even give a severe stress scenario wherein 40% of office using workers remain at home on any given day. I find that hard to believe, but, you know, let's say it's possible. The average valuation for single asset CMBS loans would drop by 54% from where it was at origination. 
yeah, that's uh, that's pretty telling. But again, I mean, that's that's an extreme scenario. I can't see almost half the workforce staying home. Um, but I mean, it's it's something to keep in mind. Again, like I said, I mean, th- this article is pretty fascinating. Again, it's from BizNow. We'll leave it in the show notes. I'll put it in the description below um, once we're done with the live stream. I mean, it's it's pretty fascinating. I think that this is actually a relatively realistic take on what could happen in the world of office space. Moving on, this is another article from BizNow. The Innovators, Legal and General's Retail Leasing Strategy. This is one. Um, this is one aspect of commercial real estate, as far as resiliency goes, that we have been touting for quite some time now. Is that the way that commercial real estate is done has to change? It is just too old school. You know, I always tell everybody it feels like it's stuck in the '80s. You know, it's it's a lot of older white men uh, that you know, just a lot of them, you're like, man, I feel like you're here just because you've been here for so long. (laughs) And there's no, there's no prop tech. There's no system. There's no good systems. A lot of stuff is, is, is very hidden behind walls. And, you know, there's not a very transparent market there, um, which is fine, but somebody's going to come along and innovate that away. Right. Um, You know, you look at, look at uh, the way that leases are traditionally done, right? Restaurants sign 10 year leases. Retailers sign five to ten year leases. Uh, medical tenants sign five to ten year leases. You know, office tenants typically five. You know, maybe three year leases. It's very difficult, and most landlords just aren't willing to consider anything shorter than that. And there's this this program that's just this is how it's done, right? And for a while, I thought that that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what about the smaller guys? What about the small businesses that are trying to you know get started up? I mean, at the end of the day, is it really that difficult to do a one-year lease or a six-month lease? I mean, yeah, sure, it's not as desirable as a five-year, right? Like, I mean, nobody's going to argue that here. But if you could charge a higher rate for a shorter term and provide flexibility to tenants, don't you think that your spaces would get leased faster at a higher velocity than almost any other property in the market? Because you're, you're telling tenants that you're going to work with them. I mean, that's, the, that's what tenants really want to see now, especially coming out of COVID, is as my landlord, you know, because, I mean, you're in business together, right? Like maybe you don't own the same business, but you're, the landlord and the tenant are in business together. Because unless that tenant does extremely well and survives to pay rent next month, I'm going to have a vacant space and I'm going to have to cover that myself. And it's better to, you know, work with a tenant and figure it out and help them get back up on their feet. And I think that a lot of tenants are going to be looking for that kind of landlord now. You know, how did you handle, uh, you know, rent abatement issues during COVID? How did you how did you handle, you know, businesses being completely shut down? We had one one tenant that, uh, you know, we're still giving them half rent because they they clean they they supply labor to clean and turn over hotel rooms uh, and Airbnbs. Well, obviously that market got decimated because, you know, hotel occupancy is at 50% now, maybe, right? Like it had to work its way up to that. Airbnbs went to zero back in March and April and May and June of last year. So, you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta work with tenants. Um, and, and this is go a lot, this article goes very, very deeply into that. 
Um, let's see. For decades, the way British leases were structured with long tenures and rent reviews every five years where the rent could only go up worked just fine for property owners and retailers. Both sides had certainty and security. Again, that's the way that it's always been done. But as consumer habits changed, retailers became locked into leases on high rents at unprofitable stores. We saw that time and time again through the pandemic. Landlords had a choice of either cutting rents or risking a tenant walking away or going bust, leaving their units empty. The uncertainty has led to a huge plummet in retail property values, and the whole situation has only, is, has only been accelerated by lockdowns and social distancing. Now, one thing I will say is what we've experienced over the last year is a black swan event, right? I mean, how often are we going to go through a global pandemic that just shuts down the, the whole market? Uh, very rarely. But again, uh, you know, when, uh, when times get tough, everybody sees who you, what your true character is. And so I would imagine that there's going to be a, a lot of tenants that are not happy with their current landlord situation and want to leave. So before the pandemic hit, legal and general investment management real assets, which owns 76 million square feet in the UK, decided that rather than ignore the issue or try and sell out of the retail sector, as some of the peers are doing, it wanted to change the way at least retail assets. I love that. I love that. I mean, look, it's, it's you know, we've talked about this multiple times before with, with retail. Retail's not dying. If if you think retail is dying, it's because, again, you, you probably also think office is dying. And neither of those are the case. It's evolving. It's just becoming something else. You look at, I mean, look at the, look at the postal service. I mean, hell, we used to have our mail delivered by horses, and now it gets delivered by airplanes. You think people were upset, uh, or did you think people were saying that you know, mail is dying or that you know horses were dying? There's no need for horses anymore because you know, mail is being delivered by planes. Like, it just, things change. Right. And it's just not if, if you don't adapt, then you will die. It's, it's just like Macy's. Right. Macy's couldn't shift online and they paid for it, even though they innovated so heavily in, in the retail market. I mean, you know, Sears, one of the biggest innovators ever in retail, couldn't survive because they didn't innovate or they didn't adapt to innovation. You know, you, you've got to constantly be reevaluating. Re so how are they, uh, what are they doing for their new leases? So this was an interview um, with, it looks like, what's, what's his name? Dins Ibrahim um, with, uh, with that general and legal group. So how does the lease, how does the new lease structure work? We've got four key packages which are designed to appeal to different types of the occupier, which love it, Right. Because, I mean, you can't your, – your space is not going to suit just one type of tenant. You're going to have small businesses. You're going to have, you know, your regional businesses. You're going to have national businesses. How are you going to accommodate all three and open up your tenant pool? So they've got a flexi lease, which is a simple turnover-based model aimed at small and medium-sized businesses and startups. It's got shorter lease terms, three to 36 months, which, like I was saying, 36 months traditionally – is the shortest people ever want to go. Oh, it looks like Am is coming in with uh, with a question. What do you think is the reason triple net tenants don't own their space? There's many reasons. I mean, one of them is it ties up capital that they could better uh, use in their business. So you got to think uh, most of these tenants are not in the real estate business, right? 
So, you know, you and I are in the real estate business. We want to put our capital into real estate and rent to these tenants. That's a great way for us to get a return on our capital. But these tenants will look at it and go, okay, well, I could invest that capital into real estate. And now I'm stuck here and I've got to maintain this. I've got to deal with this and I'm not going to get a good return on my money. Or we could just rent it, not have to put any capital, you know, 15, 20% down. We can take that 15 to 20% and invest it in more inventory, which will drive down our cost per unit, uh, in which, you know, will drive a higher return on sales. So that's, that's kind of how they look at it. Um, you know, owning, owning your own real estate is not always the best move. I mean, think about it. Also, it's incredibly tough to capitalize. Um, I mean, look at McDonald's. If, if they were going to go out and buy real estate for thousands and thousands and thousands of stores, I mean, capital is not infinite, right? It's a very finite resource. Um, they, could, they would very quickly become constrained on what they could possibly do within their actual business where they make money. And then they would become very real estate and asset heavy, um, but you know they they would run out of cash pretty quickly. So hope that answers your question, Am. Um, okay, so it looks like they deliver that three to thirty six month lease in a white box space. So again, they probably just go in there and they amortize the cost of turning it into a white box over that three to thirty six month term, and just adjust the lease rate accordingly. Right. I mean, you get the highest lease rate per square foot on your short term leases. You get your market rate for uh, the, the medium term leases and then you get maybe slightly below market rate for your long term leases because you've got that certainty for 10 years. Right. Let's see. They have the operational lease, which is aimed at mid sized or national brands where a traditional lease doesn't really work for them anymore. That has a turnover lease for a slightly longer term. So three to five years with an owner lease break linked to performance. So we can take back the asset if we don't think the tenant is contributing to the performance of a wider scheme. I love that, right? It gives both sides the flexibility within that three to five years to say, hey, we don't think this is working out. You know, let's part separate ways. And there's many reasons that a landlord might say that, right? If you're in a food hall and you've got only a handful of spaces, you need every tenant in there drawing in a significant amount of people because every single you know if i've got a burger joint uh you know every person that i bring into the burger joint they may have kids that want to go to the pizza joint right and so everybody does better but you know if i've got some weird food that nobody ever wants to eat i'm not contributing to the overall health of the whole development which could potentially put the landlord's rent payments uh in in question right i mean if nobody's doing well nobody can pay rent so that's, that's a scenario where that could happen. Uh, there's the flagship lease. Looks like this is the, for, for the more resilient occupiers. So probably, I don't know, think your big boxes that did really well. Uh, grocery stores that lease instead of buying their own real estate. Um, it, so it's more of a traditional lease, uh, but they're you know, looking at it in kind of a slightly different way. Um, and then their fourth one is a flexi flagship lease, which has the flexibility of a turnover lease. So remember, either side could terminate uh, or they ha either side has options. Uh, but for the duration of a flagship lease, which is five years plus, some brands might spend a lot on fit out and they'll need a longer lease term to make the return on that. Or maybe they just want to test the market. They want to you know, sign a flagship lease, but they only want to test the market for three years to see how it does. Um, so they need time to engage with the customer, but they still want that flexibility. I mean, it, it just makes sense. I think that having this box 
where you're trying to fit every single tenant into it, uh, it's going to be really tough. I mean, you've got to curate deals for every tenant. I mean, that's why commercial real estate brokerage is not going anywhere anytime soon. I think every deal is so different and has to be finessed that you can't just MLS your way out of, of commercial real estate brokers. So, I mean, that's good for the future of commercial real estate, right? I mean, brokers will have a job for at least the foreseeable future, I think. Okay. All right. Now we've got PE deal dive, private equity deal dive. What are some of the biggest deals around the country that we need to be talking about? And we, uh, we teased this one at the top of the hour as well. Blackstone and Starwood joined to buy extended stay for $6 billion, which is an all cash deal. Now, you might be pretty surprised, right? $6 billion uh, for Extended Stay America. That's an incredible valuation. Um, this is a 50-50 joint venture between Blackstone and Starwood. The valuation puts it at $19.50 a share, which represents a 15.1% premium over the price of the stock on March 12th, uh, which was you know a few days ago. Um, let's see. What are they saying here? Uh, this is interesting. So back in April, uh, right after the pandemic hit, the two firms bought 13.4% of the company. So they they bought in early on, and they've been watching how it's performed for the last eight months. And now they've negotiated to buy the entire company. According to Starwood Capital CEO Bernie Sternlicht, Extended Stay has demonstrated resilience over the past year despite persistent challenges due to government lockdowns and travel restrictions. I mean, it's it's pretty phenomenal. When we get into these numbers, your your jaw is going to drop because I mean, I honestly can't believe it. Um, when, I, when I first started diving into this, it was unbelievably fascinating to me. So, look at this: uh, the company reported in February that its revenue per available room for the full year of 2020 decreased 15 percent compared to 2019. Uh, let's see. Which was only a th- and with only a 300 basis point decline in occupancy to 73.8 percent, so they only experienced a three percent decline in their occupancy in 2020. Think about that. There were apartment complexes that did worse than that. They crushed it. They absolutely crushed it. So and here you go. In the worst year on record for U.S. hotels, extended stay. Absolutely crushed it. Um, average occupancy for the industry in 2020 was 44%. So not only uh, they they had 30% higher occupancy rates than the industry average, um, and most so the industry dropped about an average of 33.3 percentage points compared to 2019. So put that in perspective. Extended stay drops 3%. The market drops 33%, 11 times more than extended stay. It's pretty remarkable considering the state of hospitality today. Um, you know, there's there's many reasons for it, right? You've got some people who just needed a place for a week or two weeks. Uh, but the thing is, they really started focusing on 30-plus day bookings, right? There's There are plenty of people who don't really want to go through the pain of signing a lease or, hey, you know, I don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of months. I'm just going to go, you know, stay at an extended stay hotel, treat that as my home and see, you know, kind of how things shake out in the world 
instead of signing a new lease or moving to a new city. Let's just see how it goes. Or maybe you're moving to a new city and you can't buy a house because you're, you've decided to move to Austin and the market's so damn hot that you know stuff's going for 25% over asking and there's multiple offers within hours of listing it. You just can't buy anything. You know That's a good option too. So pretty remarkable to see considering the state of hospitality. This next article is from fool.com. Most hotels are struggling in 2020, but extended stay hotels are struggling less. Obviously, 2020 was a horrendous year for hotels. There was almost no traveling. Um, it's estimated hotels as a whole have seen a 50% decline in revenue, which resulted in $124 billion in losses. It, it's been, I know we've talked about this a couple of times before, but it's been remarkable to see what is going on in the world of hospitality. I mean, there are owners that are seller financing with zero down and incredibly low interest rates just to get out of it and let somebody else come in and deal with it because they haven't been able to keep booked. Um, it looks like 80% of rooms stayed unoccupied in 2020. That's a big, big number. So let's see. Why are extended stay hotels struggling less? Extended stay hotels cater to a different clientele than regular hotels. You know, this is one thing that, that Andy on my team keeps talking about. It's a, it's a blending of the hotel industry and multifamily industry, right? It's, it's just like what you're starting to see in retail space. It's retail is kind of blending with, you know, these experiential type of uses. They don't rely on leisure travelers so much as business travelers or those looking to bridge a gap between rentals. So just as I was saying, so totally different kind of clientele. Of course, during the pandemic business, there were plenty of businesses that kept going. They kept, you know, they were still rock, rock and rolling. Um, some people use extended stay establishments as their homes for months on end, holding up in these hotels rather than dealing with the complexities of signing a lease on an apartment. Extended Stay America reported an $8.8 million second quarter loss this year, which pales in comparison to what larger hotel chains have lost. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. They shifted gears and focused on attracting travelers who book longer-term stays, uh, and that really paid off. Um, yeah, they reported an average occupancy rate of close to 70% during 2020 second quarter which of course is lower than the average, but it's still really high compared to everybody else. So, you know, one thing to, to touch on too, I mean, obviously hospitality is not going anywhere. Like this has been such a great time to buy up hotels and buy up motels and, um, you know, even Airbnbs, if that's your thing. I mean, the market, it, we all know this is temporary. I mean, man, as soon as all the restrictions are lifted, and people are allowed to go and travel, they are going to travel in droves. I mean, I, I went down to uh, check out Fifth and Broad this weekend, which is the latest development in Nashville um, downtown. I mean, it's this massive mixed-use campus um, with you know all sorts of shopping. Uh, there's a food hall there. It's got office. It's got hotel space. I mean, it's huge. It's right down on Broadway. And so we went down to check out the, the food hall. Well, you know, obviously it's on Fifth. So, you know, the, the majority of the action on Broadway happens from 4th to 1st. And I've never seen so many people on Broadway. I mean, I think it's a combination of this weekend. We, we start, it started to warm up a little bit. I think also that, you know, some of the restrictions were, were raised uh, or, I guess, lowered. 
um, in Nashville. They removed some of the restrictions. And people were kind of fatigued, and they're over it. And it was interesting to see how many people were out there. Now, also, let's keep in mind that, you know, these bars are not as full as they once were, right? We're still at, you know, half capacity or, or whatever that is, and there's seating room only. So uh, there's, there's not as many people inside, but people were waiting in lines. I mean, lines longer than I've ever seen for some of these bars. So if, uh, if there's any doubt that hospitality uh, may not come back, um, just, you know, let that be a little anecdote for how ready people are to get out there and start doing things again. All right, this next sector is PropTech. Uh, PropTech is an emerging uh, point in commercial real estate and real estate as a whole that I think could have astounding implications to the market. You know, earlier I had mentioned that commercial real estate hasn't really innovated very much um, in the last 40 years, really. Uh, you know, leases haven't really changed a lot. We inherit, you know, some tenants that have these 20, 30, 40-year-old leases and we're looking at them. And a lot of the terms are relatively the same, right? I mean, paragraphs get added in, sentences change, but a lot of the stuff is relatively the same. So PropTech is, is interesting because it is rapidly, rapidly changing the market. So here's this article from Forbes, how PropTech is changing multifamily for the better. So if you're not familiar with what PropTech is, it is property technology. It is all of the technological advancements that you can make to a property in order to make it more efficient. So this can be everything from ring doorbells or you know Bluetooth connects to your phone key locks, which is what we'll talk about here in a second, so that you know you don't have to have keys. You can let people in remotely. To you know we're talking about implementing some systems in our tower in Chattanooga that will give my property manager in Nashville the ability to go okay. The HVAC is not firing on floor six uh, on the northern end of the building. Uh, let's send an HVAC tech out there. And things like that might be, you know, costly on the front end, right? But what could that potentially save when you tell an HVAC technician, hey, it's on the northern side of the building? You know, he goes out there, he spends an hour less time trying to diagnose the problem. We save that amount of money. And overall, it just makes it a more attractive asset, right? I mean, if you own... If you're headquartered in Chicago and you want to own buildings throughout the Southeast, that's incredibly attractive to you. You can monitor building systems from far away, but you also make them more efficient. You know, there's some technology out there that monitors how many people are walking in and out of a building, and it will it will it uses artificial intelligence to determine how much HVAC, how much new cold air needs to be blown into that building in order to lower the temperature, because now with three more human beings in it, it's going to raise the temperature by four degrees or three degrees, whatever that ends up being. And so it very precisely calculates what that is so that you don't use an ounce more energy to cool the space than you otherwise would need to. So it's, it's pretty fascinating what PropTech could actually do for commercial real estate. So this article is saying that PropTech is on the rise. Uh, investment in PropTech hit a record high at $14 billion invested globally uh, in 2019. By the end of 2019, $31.54 billion was invested in PropTech. And even with a 24.7% decrease in venture capital funding globally in 2020, we ended the past year at $23.75 billion invested in PropTech. It is growing rapidly because people are starting to realize how much value to the bottom line 
these systems and tech could actually bring to commercial real estate. And multifamily prop tech is no different. It is becoming a vital part of providing seamless, high-quality building services. So, you know, I mean, honestly, prop tech can be as, as low, like as unsophisticated as using DotLoop or DocuSign. You know, when I got started in commercial real estate seven years ago, everybody had to have hand-signed copies of, of leases, which meant that every time I wanted to get a lease done, I had to go meet the business owner in person. Can you imagine how difficult that is if the business that we're leasing to is in Chicago? So they have to, in Chicago, print out the lease, hand sign it with a blue pen, scan it over to me, and then they have to overnight it. Well, what happens if you know they scan it over to me, I don't see it in time, and they sign something wrong? Well, now we've got to do the whole damn thing again. Whereas now with DocuSign, DotLoop, it makes it so easy for me to just send it to them, no matter where you are, you click a button, and it's done. I mean, that's just how, that's how it should be. So it's, it's pretty amazing just the, just the minor advances uh, that PropTech really brings to the market. So let's see. One of their key innovations in a Class B residential property in Louisville, Kentucky, was the implementation of smart lock technology. Having smart locks on each unit means our property manager isn't making the potentially hours-long round-trip drive each time a property, is a property tour is scheduled or a maintenance issue occurs. He can control the access to the property remotely, increasing his efficiency and capacity, and he's free to focus his attention elsewhere. So think about that. You know, typically, um, you have to have a property manager on site in order to give tours because they have to actually physically open the space and show it, right? But in a uh, post-COVID world, you know, I mean, people, I mean, especially still right now, uh, are uncomfortable giving tours in person. So if you, have a, if you have a smart building where you can unlock the door remotely, you have ring cameras inside so you can monitor what goes on, and you have uh, smart lights, you can turn all the lights on with a click of a button on your phone, and you can turn them off with a click of a button on your phone, you can now give tours completely remotely, which means you know one issue that we deal with as, as a property management company, if, if a property manager is sick, well, either I've got to go sit at the front desk, you know, my partner has to go sit at the front desk, we have to fly somebody in, or we have to find a temp. I mean, you can't, there's no other choice. But if we now have smart, you know, smart apartment complexes, I could handle those tours completely remotely. Everything gets logged and tracked, and, and I don't have to, you know, spend any time in person. If they like it, we can send them the lease to sign, you know, digitally, which is great. I mean, it just makes it so easy. You never have to worry about losing keys. You just touch your phone to it or you open it with your phone. Or if you get locked out, you go down to the management office and they just unlock it with their phone. Uh, pretty pretty amazing uh, what that can do. And uh, one thing that we've been doing, my, my partner Bruce Peterson out of Austin has actually been doing this on his properties. He has smart apartment upgrades for his apartment units. So instead of, uh, I mean, obviously they're upgrading them as they go. But if you want a smart apartment unit, they'll install one of these key locks. They'll install a ring doorbell. Um, and I forgot what, I think there's something else. But, and it's like, I don't know, 25 bucks a month more or 50 bucks a month more, whatever that is. Um, and, you know, they don't have to pay for any of those upgrades. It's just they add it onto the rent. Well, that, that $50 a month for that one unit increases the value of the property significantly. 
significantly, far more than what you're going to spend on a ring doorbell and a lock, but also the tenant doesn't have to pay for it, right, up front. So how valuable is that? So, uh, you know, prop tech uh, is, is pretty, pretty phenomenal um, to what it can do. Uh, let's see. PropTech is a, com- a testament to a building owner's commitment to long-term improved quality of life for building management and residents alike. Again, it just it, it increases your operational efficiencies. And in real estate, where everything is based on a cap rate, value matters most. All right. Well, that's it for, for PropTech. Let's dive into reading REITs, real estate investment trusts. What is going on in the world of REITs? REITs surged amid mixed run for major asset classes last week. So last week when we were talking about this, uh, REITs were actually on a down run. Um, It says here, Vanguard U.S. Real Estate rebounded sharply, rising 5.5% for the trading week. But I think they had three weeks in a row, yeah, slipping for three straight weeks uh, where they were down. Uh, Most slices of the major asset classes rose last week, including U.S. and foreign stocks, commodities, and foreign property shares. The big loser was investment-grade bonds in the U.S., uh, which is, you know, obviously to be expected. So it says here, Vanguard U.S. real estate has yet to regain its pre-pandemic high, uh, and it rallied to its closest, uh, to its highest close since markets began rebounding in late March of 2020. So that's pretty great. Like, it hasn't quite gotten back to where it was before the pandemic, but it's it's pretty close. I mean, if you're looking at this chart right here, I mean, we're – we're really not far off from where they were, uh, which is which is pretty great to see. I, I don't have a, any real estate investment trust uh, in my portfolio, uh, but if you're looking at, at you know passively investing in commercial real estate, REITs are a phenomenal way of doing so. Uh, they're if you're if you're a stock guy or girl, uh, it's it's very they're traded very similarly, um, so uh, they they can be pretty attractive uh, first step often. Uh, let's see. Fed is widely expected to leave its target rate unchanged at the current 0% to 0.25% target range uh, and are aiming for higher inflation, which means higher interest rates. So obviously with higher interest rates, uh, bonds are just, they're just not attractive. You're, I mean, you're, you're basically losing money uh, owning a bond at that point. Let's see. No losses for the major asset classes on a one-year basis. Uh, the weakest gain is currently posted by foreign government bonds and developed markets. SPDR, Bloomberg, Barclays International Treasury bond closed up 4.5% on Friday versus its year earlier price on a total return basis. I mean, performing pretty, pretty phenomenally. Let's see if there's anything else in here worth diving into. Looks not. I mean... You know, REITs are something that we're going to continue to monitor. They are uh, they're good overall, uh, you know, canary in the coal mine um, for real estate health, uh, considering they get traded like stocks. They're not a, a direct comparison, but a pretty good one. So, all right. Well, that is all that we have for Real Estate Investment Trust. Now for this week's wild card with Andy Zoo. Andy, what is going on, man? Hey, Tyler. How you doing? Pretty good I'm show so well. far. Yeah, glad you appreciate it, man. How's, uh, how's everything going in your world? I'm doing all right over here. I've got myself a new webcam, so hopefully we look better than we, than we did last week. <laughs> yeah, no, you sound way better, too. This is great. 
So, Andy, what is uh, what do we got on the on uh, the agenda for this week's wild card? So, in line with what we've been talking about, of trying to talk about the future of of construction and the future of real estate is is modular construction here. So, modular construction is essentially, I think, going to be becoming a very dominant player in the real estate market. And so, you know, we talk about investing in buildings, but as developers, we're always trying to look at not only just acquiring existing buildings, but creating new buildings and doing it in an efficient way. And right now, construction costs across the board are crazy. You have problems with labor shortages where you don't have enough trained workers in order to be able to put out buildings efficiently. And I mean, just looking at comparing, you know, how long it takes to build things in America, it's not just we have a long time permitting process. Go look at compare uh, construction rates for big projects in America versus, you know, China or Japan or wherever. The biggest deal is that they have way more people to build stuff than we do. And they can build buildings for way faster and way cheaper. And that's going to obviously cause a huge drag on creating the buildings and projects that we need for the future. So modular construction has been something that people have been trying to do for a long time. And what that really just means is that they're building components of a building off-site, so not on-site. So usually when you go build a building, you pour the concrete, you know, you grade the land, you put the concrete down, then you put the sticks and the, you know, the wood and the lumber into the ground, and then you build the wall, and then you nail the wall into those sticks that you put up, right? And then everything is built on site. And so the the problem with traditional construction is that if you have a day that rains, for example, and you can't have your workers out there working, or you have a problem with the delivery of a shipment and you have to navigate bringing all the materials onto your site. There can just be a lot of different factors that affect, let's say, you know, we have, other than rain, you know, we have a major traffic jam, right? Even just a traffic jam in a city. What if your electric guy can't get out there and he's delayed a few hours well, then that's bad because your inspector was supposed to get out there later this afternoon. And then because your electrician couldn't get out there this morning, then the inspector got there and things weren't done. And then you have to push your project back. So there's all these different problems that can happen when you're building everything on site. So off-site construction is traditionally has been done more in Europe and even had been done in parts of the United States for a while, but it kind of fell off because we never figured out exactly how to make that process super efficient. Now, because construction costs have been rising, material costs have been rising, labor costs have been rising, and land costs have been rising, everything's been rising for building new buildings. So we have to figure out as much as possible where we can cut uh, costs, right? And land prices are not going to be going down anytime soon. And it's hard to cut material prices. So because that's kind of just determined by the market. So how can we build things with less waste? If we can build with less waste, then we can save on materials. 
how can we save on labor if we can have everyone kind of doing assembly line type work for these buildings, as opposed to kind of a lot of wasted work that might have to deal with bringing in different crews all the different all the time onto a job site, then you're also can save on labor there. So this is why uh, modular construction is going to be so big into the future. And as we can see here, the biggest thing that it will do for a construction project is not just potentially in cost savings, but in a 20 to 50% schedule compression. And here's the reason why. Traditionally, you look at this, it takes six for a traditional project. Let's say it takes six months to plan it. You, you build the foundation for two months, you build the building for 12 more months, and then potentially there's, there's times and delays that's gonna take four more months after that. With modular construction, you can go ahead and start be building a lot of the stuff even before the planning and permitting and all the foundations of the building are done. As you see here, they're building the buildings in the factory and they're gonna be able to place those buildings on site with a crane. I'll show you some pictures of that in a second. But they're building because they're building those buildings in a factory and they don't have to wait for the foundations to be done, as you see here. Look at all this time savings they can do. And because if they do it the right way with modular construction and having MEP, which is mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, if you have that already built into the module, then you don't have all this extra time here where you send your electrician in and then you have to wait and wait and wait and you know wait for an inspection to go through. Then you send your plumber in and you have to have your rough in plumbing inspection. And then you have your finished plumbing inspection. Then you have your finished electrical inspection. And if you haven't been in a redevelopment process, these things really take forever. You're oftentimes waiting around for an inspector to come in. And then you can't do anything because you can't cover up the wires and the plumbing and the wall until the inspectors come out and knows that the building is safe, right? You want that. You, it's not like inspectors are bad. We want people to be living in buildings that are safe, have safe electrical, have safe plumbing. But it takes a long time and adds a long time to projects and that adds cost. So if you can cut down 12 months, six to 12 months off of a construction budget, construction schedule, because you're doing modular construction, oh my gosh, you can deliver projects probably 10 to 20% cheaper. And that directly translates to the end user, right? Because a all things considered, a construction company, actually a development company would actually want to be building their uh, projects cheaper because then if they can rent out for slightly lower rents, then they can rent up their building faster, they can get to market faster, they can refinance and sell the project faster, all things considered, as long as it returns them the same return, right? So people don't necessarily always want to be building these ultra luxury projects all the time, but because of labor costs, construction costs, material costs, land costs, that's what we've been having to do. So modular construction can yield these significant cost savings, as they said, can potentially realize over 20% in construction cost savings, and not only that, but also schedule savings as well, right? So, um, if we look here, some modular construction projects, here's how they're built. So they're built in a factory oftentimes, and then they're transported off on 
you know, your 18 wheelers to a site and they're using these cranes to stack them together. So once all these buildings components are pretty much done, they're shipped on a 18 wheeler, as you see here, and then they just plop them on each little block, just like Legos. And that's why you can build these projects way, way faster because all the construction is done inside the factory. It's climate controlled. Everyone's going to show up on time, you know, and that's another thing. Uh, managing your labor in a factory is much easier than managing your labor on a job site because you can see everybody. You can see and make sure you can have them clock in at eight o'clock every single day as opposed to a job site where you know your plumber or your painter. Oftentimes, they get a really bad rap, these guys, because, you know, they often, the stereotypes is they often stay up late, you know, drinking or doing whatever. And they, if they show up at nine o'clock and you're the general contractor, you're not necessarily there, you might, <laughs> you might miss out on seeing that they didn't show up for an hour. And so there are all these inefficiencies that you can help control when you're building these projects in a factory. And as we see here, uh, there's a $130 billion of the market by 2030 is going to likely be in modular construction uh, de delivering an annual per year, delivering an annual cost savings of $22 billion, which could fulfill a $1.6 trillion productivity gap in the construction industry. And I think that it could even be faster than this. We could get there even faster if development continues to be constrained by land costs and all these other costs. Everyone's going to be wanting to build new projects and building them cheaper and building them faster. There is a, it is a no lose situation as long as you can design the project right and make sure it's still delivering a good product for your end user. So there's a couple companies that are doing it. One is called Katera. They're a pretty big company and they're doing mostly modular apartment buildings. And you can see here, you know, they even got robots that can put all their little building blocks together and then everyone assembles it. And then look, they just uh, slide on these panels and stick them together. So Katera specifically, I believe they do a lot of their construction uh, in panelized construction. So it's a slightly different version of construction. So they'll usually build a whole wall system as opposed to a whole unit block. And the difference there is if I'm building a full unit, then that unit is done, it's usually finished, it has its electrical and wiring and plumbing all inside. And you see here, oftentimes they're just building the wall and then putting that up. But it's also still going to drive much, much faster building times. Factory OS is another one. And both of these companies are based out of California. This is where a lot of the drive is coming. Uh, I'm hoping that more people are going to be trying to come to these middle markets like a Nashville. Uh, because, you know, Tyler and I have been looking to partner with modular construction or shipping container construction type groups, and we would love to be putting these out in Nashville, uh, but currently it, it's difficult to find them because they're currently mostly focused on the coast. But Factory OS, as you can see here, uh, are also doing the same thing, as you said, 20 to 40% less, expen less expensive or 40, 50% faster if you can do it right. Uh, and as you see here, they have their guys, they're building a house kind of normally or building a part of a building pretty normally inside a factory, climate controlled, easy to manage. And then they're gonna 
plop them right in with a crane when it's time to be delivered. So that's that's where I think that, as you can see here, we're going to see a lot of drive towards modular construction into the future. And I'm very hopeful that it's going to be branching out into, as I said before, places like Nashville. And if there's any modular construction guys out there or gals, uh, we would love to talk because um, we are actively trying to look to do projects with some modular components in it. So it's kind of a brief overview of modular construction and why it's going to be important. I think you guys are going to be seeing a lot more buildings like this come up online over the next few years in the real estate industry. And I'm really hopeful that it can drive a lot of cost savings down. And then this can really be one of the ways we're building things into the future. So Tyler, um, back to you. And I know you have been in and around the development space and have done work with you know construction companies in the past. So I think you would know firsthand how much having, you know, speeding up the process and being able to manage your labor could really save you and save any developer using this technique to build their buildings. Tyler, I don't think we can hear you. At least I can't hear you through my headphones. I've just pulled up the YouTube. I don't think I can hear. Yeah, I was like, is it just me? But no, I just pulled up the YouTube channel too. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Oh, there we go. I don't know what that was. So so nothing that I was saying could be heard? No. Oh, man. <laughs> I was going on a tangent. Okay. Uh, well, as Andy was saying, I mean, yeah, the, the, the biggest issue that we have as developers in construction is, um, you know, the, the timing of, of the development. You know, you're, you're at the mercy of the weather. You look at Nashville a couple of weeks ago, we had this ice storm that took out a whole week, right? So... You know, if you were in the middle of a project that week, you literally lost a whole week that you cannot make up, right? And so being able to construct these projects within a manufacturing facility uh, where you don't, you have that controlled climate, you have controlled labor, you have controlled, you know, everything, um, you know, it just, it makes it far, far more efficient. It's, you know, construction costs and labor and timing have been one of the biggest issues in commercial real estate development for several years now. So it's, it's very frustrating to deal with. So yeah, if you, um, if you know of any modular groups 
uh, that would be great uh, for us to talk to you, please let us know. We're actively looking for a group that we can go to on projects in the Nashville area. We've got several sites that we're looking at doing a modularly constructed, modularly, that's a fun word to say, constructed uh, project in Nashville, whether it's apartments, restaurants, office space, it doesn't really matter. We're looking at everything. So uh, yeah, definitely let us know. Awesome. Well, Andy, thank you for uh, thank you for that. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right, man. So that is all that we have for this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. Be sure to tune in live Mondays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard. Uh, and feel free to join in the conversation in the live chat. Ask, ask your questions, uh, whether it's something that we're covering uh, in the moment or something that you just in generally uh, would like to ask. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're watching on the YouTube channel. And please rate and review if you're listening on the podcast. And we will see you next week.